Welcome to Your Next Chapter, the podcast dedicated to you. The podcast dedicated to providing you with tips, tricks, and resources to live life you want. Your Next Chapter provides you with people who are living rad and inspirational lives to gain insights from to conquer the next chapter of your life. Whether you want to start a business, a new career, get in the best shape of your life, or create better routines and structure for yourself, Your Next Chapter provides you with guests to help you draw inspiration, insight, and wisdom from to lead the life you want. Welcome ladies and gentlemen. In front of me I have Dave Barr. Dave Barr is the partner and portfolio and one of the portfolio managers here at Pender Fund Capital. He is just recently won the Liver Award for the best small mid-cap portfolio in Canada and I'm really proud to have him here on the podcast today as I really feel he's going to have a lot of uh, valuable knowledge to bring to you guys. Dave, do you want to just give yourself a quick little intro and let the audience know what you do on a day-to-day? Yeah, thanks Phil. Uh, my day-to-day, I really, as a portfolio manager, uh, my job is picking stocks and that go into our portfolios. So my day basically involves a lot of reading alone in my office, uh, as well as talking to other investors and companies, um, really trying to learn as much as I can about a company and an industry so that we're making the most intelligent investment decisions possible. Nice. And draw the audience a bit of a picture, kind of where you began, where you went to school, and how you ended up where you are today. Yeah, I I started at UBC in sciences. Uh, I was, uh, my, my mom's still disappointed in me that I'm not a doctor today. Uh, after about a year of sciences, really started to develop a passion for investing to the point where I'd, you know, I'd stop by the commerce faculty and pick up a free copy of the Financial Post and in the back of my biology lectures I'd be, I'd be reading about uh, the investment industry. And after, after my undergrad, I, uh, I, 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 I started a computer company with a friend of mine. So very sort of comp- combining my love of investments with entrepreneurship. But really, you know, wanting to get in the investment industry. After a couple of years of of the computer company, uh, I went to Toronto and did an MBA in finance. Really, if I wanted to learn about investing, Toronto in, in Canada was the place to go. So went up to Canada, went up there, finished an MBA in finance, and then coming back to Vancouver after that, uh, started with a small venture capital firm, which really married you know our, my my quantitative skill sets that I learned through my MBA program with also my technical background in both kind of life sci- my life sciences degree, but my experience operating a technology company and, and started in venture capital. And that that eventually became, you know, led me to where I am today. And at what point did you know that investments and you're passionate about, you said obviously that you're going to your science lectures, but grabbing copies of the financial post, was that kind of like your first indication that you knew that, you know, sciences weren't quite the thing you wanted to do? And when did you recognize that you were going to kind of switch paths away from your initial education? Yeah, my you know, my, my initial brush with investments was actually probably in grade 10 in a consumer ed class where we did a stock market challenge and um, I just, I totally loved it. And then I, I talked to some people about, you know, how, this was really cool. How do I, how do I start a career in this? And the advice I got at that point in time was, it's not a respectable job. You should probably be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, you know, it was then you know, after a couple of years of university. Um, you know, I, I really, I actually, I really enjoyed my science degree. It, it, it does. 
it relates really well to what we do today because you know, the scientific method is you're formulating a hypothesis. I now call that my investment thesis, and then you're challenging it. And you're always looking for to disprove your thesis, what could potentially go wrong. And that's really analogous to how we are as, as investors. I think it was really in my, my third year of my undergrad when, uh, still my best friend to this date, uh, we were talking and we decided to start an investment club. And we recruited 13 of our friends and we, uh, we started our investment club that uh, we ran for several years. And so on the topic of investment thesis, if somebody's building a business, like would that be similar to say, you know, like they should have a thesis for their business and maybe have a target for where they want to go with it. And at the same time, if that business is not playing out the way they think it is, can you draw a connection to investment thesis? Like, you know, when do you know that investment is bust for you and it's time to get out? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question and it really relates to the, the venture fund we, we've run for 15 years. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of business plans and none of them have gone according to plan. So I, what, I, what, I, what I do think is important when you're starting a business is you need to have, you have a vision of where you're going and you need to be adaptable because things aren't gonna go according to plan. Uh, you also have to be critical. So you, you know, a lot of people will stick to a plan and stay, they'll go down a course too long where all the evidence is banging them over the head saying, you know, this, this isn't going to work. Uh, you, you have to be very self-aware. You have to be, you have to be honest, and you have to evaluate the information to know when you know it's either time to, you know, fold up shop or to pivot and go in a new direction. And when you say self-aware, is that just data? Like, are they looking at sales? Is it looking at the growth of the business? Like, what would be some indicators or some KPIs that you think would really tell somebody it's time to look to pivot in a new direction? So I mean, we we look at comp the early stage companies from a risk perspective. So you know the first risk is you know technology risk. So do, does the technology actually work? You know if you're ten times over budget and your technology is not working, odds are you're probably not getting there. You know, second stage is you know the commercialization risk, and that's when you actually go up to your market and say, hey, I've got this great product. Do you want to buy it? And if everybody's saying no. Um, you know, you should probably ask yourself why. And, you know, then I, I think those are really the two big questions. Um, the, the two big hurdles a lot of people will bang their heads against and, you know, not recognize the truth when it's right in front of them. So those those be the two areas I'd focus on. You would, um, you know, consider yourself more of a contrarian investor. Why is being a contrarian investor something that's really important to you? It... Being a contrarian is just, it's, it's looking for opportunities where others aren't. And, you know, there's, there's two ways you make money in the stock market. It's, you know, you, you, you basically, you're buying a business. And if that business does really well, you'll do well. If you're able to buy that business when it's really cheap, you're gonna do even better. If you buy that business when it's really expensive, even if the company doesn't do well, you might not make money. So by being a contrarian, what that really means for us is, you know, we're, we're trying to look at companies that other people aren't interested in, which gives us a higher chance of buying, buying the company at a really good price. Can you give an example of companies, and that the audience would know, like I know you can normally talk about Microsoft as an example of a company you bought at the wrong time, how that would not have paid out for you as an investment versus something else that you got into at an early stage, how that would have benefited them? 
Yeah, so I mean, Microsoft was, you know, you look at the coming through the dot-com boom in 2000, it was you know, the largest technology company in the world, completely dominant, everybody had a Windows operating system, and it was priced accordingly. So I think if you owned Microsoft, if you bought Microsoft in 2000, um, I think you might be making money today, but you're not, you're not up much on your stock. And really it's just because, just because you paid too much. The, the business itself of Microsoft is, is, is a lot different than it was in 2000 and a lot more valuable uh, from a cash flow perspective than it was then. So what we would look, look for more are companies, you know, earlier stage where they've got a large, large market and a large growth trajectory ahead of themselves that investors just aren't aware of. And, you know, one company is uh, TO Networks in the portfolio. We, we bought a big position at, when the stock was at 22 cents and everybody hated it because they had, you know, they had one customer that was 50% of the revenue. Um, it wasn't growing. Um, there was a bunch of issues around it, but you know, that's where we saw an opportunity and we actually dug in and found out that you know, the customer concentration risk was decreasing. Uh, the rest of their business outside that customer was in fact growing quite nicely. And now today the stock's almost at $2. So you look at it for entirely from an investment standpoint, whereas like if you're looking at stocks that other people aren't looking at and being contrary in that sense, you feel there's gonna be a lot more potential upside as opposed to buying stuff that's already on the radar for other people that you feel there's gonna be more opportunity for you to make money for your investors when it comes down to. Uh, absolutely. If you're looking at everything, if you're looking at the same things everybody else is, you're just you're going to get the same results. If if you want a different result in investing and in anything, I mean you have to do things differently. And if we take a step back from that and kind of apply that to just the general uh, aspects to life, I've had a lot of people on the podcast that have basically you know followed their own path, haven't gone down the traditional university route. They've kind of you know learned through trial and error, launched a business or two, failed at it, and kind of picked up from there. How does being contrarian, especially in today, today's day and age, where there's so much you know, noise and competition in university education, the degrees are losing their value. How does being a contrarian potentially, you know, help somebody when they're going on a career path? Well, I think entrepreneurs by their very nature are contrarians because they're looking at solving a problem that other people aren't already. Um, they're looking at things differently. They have a new solution to an old problem. So for entrepreneurs, I think they're naturally contrarians and seeing these opportunities and, and different ways of solving problems. It's, you know, it's, it's challenging being a contrarian in modern society because, you know, we're all genetically programmed to, you know, to herd mentality. And if you're a contrarian, you're viewed as an outsider and, you know, it's harder to gain social acceptance. So if you're, if you're truly a contrarian, you're probably not going to become CEO of a Fortune 500 company because you have to blend in, you have to think the same as everybody, you have to play politics. Um, if you truly are a contrarian, um, what that gives you the ability to do is be disruptive, uh, change the world, and do do interesting things. You took a pretty, you know, path that's a little bit different for sure. Was there points in time where you, you know, kind of went against the herd and were contrarian, and it was you know, something that kind of came back to bite you or kind of challenging, like, was there ever a point in your career where you really felt that you were going against the grain, but in the end it made it pay it off for you? Uh, the, I mean, the biggest contrarian thing I've probably done is move back from Toronto to Vancouver. I mean, if you, if you look, if you're looking for a position in the financial services industry, there's 50 to 
finds more jobs in Toronto than there are in Vancouver. And you know, you graduate with a whole bunch of exceptional people in your MBA program, and they all have these great jobs at these great companies. And then you come up to Vancouver, and you really have to try and create your own own job. And you know, so that was earlier in your career when you're trying to build something from scratch and trying to try to figure things out. It uh, it can be challenging, um, but you know, if, you, if you're able to see it through, um, there's there's a lot of opportunity for success. This podcast is called Your Next Chapter, and it's really meant to inspire the audience to go after what they're passionate about and what they're doing. I'm curious to know, what are you building right now that you're passionate about? Really, what are you focusing on right now that's kind of like your next chapter in your life right now? Would it be, Pender, is it really like a lot of your energy is going into you know, the business that you have day-to-day? And- yeah, that's a really interesting question because you know, I've, I've always done what I've been passionate about. I mean, if you look at my university grades, it was either... A plus or B, um, you know, the, the subjects where I was really interested, I excelled. The subjects where, you know, I wasn't really interested, yeah, I did okay. Um, Pender, I mean, I wake up every morning, I read newspapers. I mean, I, I love what I do. It's and and part of it is, you know, what we do is it's lifelong learning. Like I'm always learning about new companies, new ideas. And that really gets me, you know, gets me fired up every day. When you're looking at businesses and you know new, new drugs that may come online to solve a medical issue, or you know a software which you know makes learning or teaching or something easier. It's there's, there's it's very rewarding and you know it's, it's a great place to do it. You guys currently run about four hundred million dollars in assets. What's the next step for you guys to double that or even get to five hundred million? What do you guys have to do to kind of keep going in that direction? Yeah, in, in our industry, every people tend to get measured by AUM. It's not actually how I look at it. I look at it, you know, well, we, have a, we have a great group of people here at Pender, and what we try to do is stick to our stick to our discipline. Um, you know, come into work, do the same thing every day, um, and by, by really sticking to our knitting and being authentic as investors, um, I don't know. You know, if we're—I don't know how much we're going to grow. I just know that if we stick, to, if we're true to ourselves, we we will do well. And at the end of the day, we'll be a bigger company five, ten years from today than we are today. And what is your knitting? Then, like, when you say stick to the knitting, like, what is it, Pender's DNA that's really important to you to kind of grow forward with that DNA going forward? Our, you know, our DNA is really we we when we invest, we act like business owners, and what that means is. When we're looking at a business, we're we're trying to figure out, you know, if we wanted to buy the whole company for ourselves, what would we pay, or do we even want to own it? Is it is it a company we understand? Uh, is it a company we like? Um, does it pro, you know provide exceptional customer? Does it delight their customers? Um, is it you know is there is there an opportunity to grow the business over the long term? And when you check all these boxes, then we figure out, you know, what price would we, would we pay for it as a rational person? And then if we can buy it at a big discount to that, that's how we take a lot of the, the risk of investing off the table. Your portfolios typically have a pretty large technology weight, about 30, 35%. Is that really, you know, like it being 2016 and obviously technology being very disruptive, is that you just seeing a lot of opportunities in that space, or is that something that you're just really passionate about and kind of invested because that's something that holds close to your core? Yeah, so it's a combination of both. So 
I mean, if you look at a lot of the big companies today, I mean, if you look at Ford and GM, for example, in 1940, those were high-tech companies. And so when we look at technology companies, what we're seeing is, you know, businesses which are earlier on in their, in their life cycle, where, you know, they're, they're addressing these really big markets that are growing quite rapidly. And we expect some of these companies to be, you know, the GEs and the Johnsons and Johnsons and McDonald's of tomorrow. So really, when we're if, if you're looking to create a, a lot of wealth over a long period of time, these are the types of companies you need to be to be invested in, and that. But it also ties in great with you know I I love the technology world. I've been in it since for over 20 years, uh, and I you know I think I have a fairly good understanding of technology and technology businesses, and those which create a competitive advantage and are able to perform well over time, and those that uh, maybe. If somebody just starting off investing for the first time, should they be looking to get into technology? Is that a good area to be getting into if you're starting off? Or where should somebody be looking at if they're looking to start investing right now? Yeah, the, the, the first thing I encourage anybody who's thinking about investing to do is just start. Um, you'll, you'll learn a lot of lessons just by investing. Um, the, the second thing I do is I read the book, The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. It, it has a lot of good insight into knowing yourself as an investor. So are you are you someone who's going to get actively involved in researching companies? And do you want to spend a lot of time doing this? Or is it not your thing? Would you rather be doing something, you know, is there something that interests you more where you want to be spending your time? And you have to understand what type of investor you are. But just getting out there and starting investing early. You start investing early, you take advantage of compounding over a long period of time. And so you're you're gonna you're gonna come out a lot better. But also the lessons you learn are, you know, the, when it's your own money, th those are the lessons you don't forget. Yeah, I agree with that. And you would consider yourself a value investor. Why is value investing uh, the kind of style that you stick to? It just, it's always made sense to me. I, you know, first week of my business school uh, program, we had a gentleman come and speak to the class and he mentioned this guy by the name of Warren Buffett. and. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I need to learn more about this guy. And so I picked up a book on Warren Buffett called The Warren Buffett Way. And you know, my partner Felix, I, he that was the first book he read on Warren Buffett as well. So whenever anybody joins Pender, we we give that book book to the person now. But I just I devoured the book, and the way he approached investing just made sense to me. And I think with, with value investing, it's a very common sense approach. Um, you know, some people don't like it because a lot of people, they people want to get rich quick and that's not what value investing is about. Value investing is about being disciplined and buying a dollar for 50 cents and watching it grow over a really long period of time. Yeah, and I can attest to that. One of the first stocks that I bought and you know, talk about making mistakes and kind of getting into investing was Eskill and I bought it for like four bucks back in August when the market's really high. And for me, it's like, I didn't really know what it meant for the markets to be really high. But now when I see that stock trading at two dollars, I'm like, oh, that's what means the markets were really high. And all the things I bought since then at a much cheaper time, it's like they've gone up, right? So really kind of if you are starting off, even for my short time investing, it really is critical when you get into the market because you know if you buy something at a really high point and then it comes down on you, then you're gonna be waiting a long time for that to come back, right? And so it is quite critical and it makes a lot of sense to be a value investor is what I've learned in my short time in investing so far. One next question. I'm uh, curious. So you know, I know Warren Buffett's somebody that's uh, been an impact on you in investing. 
why has Warren Buffett kind of been so instrumental? Like he's obviously the founder of Berkshire, and he's um, you know quite well respected. But why has Warren Buffett you know succeeded as much as he has in investing throughout his career? In your opinion, I think if if you look at the keys to his success, I mean he's probably got an IQ of about 180. Um, so being being with smarts, you know, a great a great asset to have in this yeah. industry. But you if you if you read his biography, Snowball. He was a voracious reader and incredibly focused. He would he would spend 12 to 16 hours every single day reading, and to the, actually to the detriment of to a lot of, of his personal relationships. Um, you know, there's there was one part that resonated with me where you know it was a Saturday and his wife planned a dinner party, and right after Warren finished dinner, he went right back up to his office and started reading annual reports again. In the middle of a dinner party, and you know that, you know that level of focus and commitment um, can get you to exceptional results like uh, like Warren. He he also he had some great mentors. He worked with Ben Graham, and then he got he got introduced to Charlie Munger, who you know I think really helped him evolve as an investor, focusing more on on businesses that uh, would grow, had great franchises and grow over time. But really, I think the keys were incredible focus, uh, just reading a lot and learning every single day, and uh, the results came. You've worked with a lot of people that build businesses and CEOs. How important is it to sacrifice? It sounds what Warren Buffett did was really like you know focus and kind of you know he'd go for the dinner party, but really as soon as that was done, he kind of you know went back to his discipline and his art. How much do you have to sacrifice? You think is that a key element in the success of building a business? There's, uh, yes, because you, I mean, it's hard to build a business on 20 hours a week. You, it, it has to be, you know, the, the core of who you are. You, you have to be fully committed to it. You know, I think, you know, Buffett probably took it to a bit of an extreme. I think there is, there is this great book that Buffett was also featured in called The Outsiders and written by uh, William Thorndike that talks about eight exceptional CEOs who delivered tremendous results. And outside of Buffett, uh, one of the common characteristics of a lot of these these individuals was they tended to be home at dinner at six o'clock uh, to hang out with their family. So there there were people who who you know you know were obviously focused and committed to their business and you know, probably spent sixty hours a week on it, but they weren't willing to sacrifice. They they did find balance in their life. I think in. As we move into a world where technology plays a bigger part and the creative process plays a bigger part in in building businesses, it, it, it's more important to actually get away and have balance because I think a lot of the, the best ideas and how you solve problems, it's not staring in an Excel spreadsheet on where you can you know, change margins or improve your cost structure a little bit. It's probably hiking in the woods, listening to birds chirp, you know, and you know, your, your, your mind's going to free up and you're probably going to, that's probably when the idea's going to strike you. If somebody were to start off by reading a book to get into investing, you mentioned Intelligent Investor, what's the best book to kind of, you know, get started for investing? Would that be the one you recommend or is there another one you can think of? Uh, the Intelligent Investor is always the one we, uh, we recommend. It, it, it really sets you up to know, like, are you an active investor or are you someone who should be seeking the help of an advisor? We're using a, an index type strategy. Um, so you know, that's really, you know, for me, that's the best book. 
and then you know I, I don't think beyond that there's not one book that's right I think what you want to do is you want to read a lot of books and because everybody is going to invest a little bit differently because everybody's everybody's circle of competence or what they're interested in is different so if you're interested in investing in technology you know you probably want to read about Steve Jobs Elon Musk um, and you know, people who build great companies if you're more interested in you know mining or oil and gas you know there's start reading John D. Rockefeller's biography. But it's really, I think what it's, it's, it's not, there's no one quick fix. Uh, investing is a lifelong pursuit. If you, if you want to learn more and get better at it, uh, just always be reading and, and read the things which are related to your passion and where you want to go. And how many hours a day would you say you spend reading? Like I know you guys do a lot of reading, but how many hours do you say you dedicate to reading per day? I'm probably reading six hours a day. Um, and Dave has two kids, and so where do you manage to squeeze that in between the kids, your wife, and family time? Uh, two hours of reading in the morning before everybody gets up, and then I have some uh, breakfast with the kids and family, and then into the office. And then probably the two hours interspersed throughout the day because there's a lot of other stuff going on. And then two hours at night after the kids go down. And so what time do you get up in the morning? Do you have a set morning routine? Like, what would that look like for you? Uh, it's between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. Okay. Depending on, I also like to work out in the morning. So if I'm working out, I'll get up earlier. Uh, days I'm not working out, I'll get up a bit later. And when you wake up, do you just get straight into reading? Or is there something you do, like, do you stretch? Do you meditate? Like, is there any kind of process or have a coffee or like anything to kind of wake up your mind? Or do you just kind of wake up and get right into reading? Uh, I wake up and start chewing through my five newspapers right away. You know exactly where they are, you just go right at it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, where can people find you if they want to reach out or ask a question, do any social media, anything like that? Yeah, we're on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, those are the two main network networks we use. Um, it's, it's tough in the investment industry. Uh, we have compliance, so you know, Facebook and Google Plus are not, uh, not areas where we're allowed to be that active but Pender David uh, uh, at Pender Dave for Twitter and then on LinkedIn it's a good platform Super. and if people want to invest in Pender where can they find your funds uh, penderfund.com place to go um, someone here at Pender will be more than happy to help <laughs> anyone out and I'll put notes to all that and uh, links to a few of the funds that Dave runs and uh, yeah like I said you want to live for work for the best small mid-cap fund in Canada so He's had some great returns in his funds and it's definitely worth looking at. He's definitely done a good job protecting on the downside as well, so I'll put some links to that as well. Any last words you want to leave with the audience or a piece of advice you want to pass on before we wrap up here? No, I think you know it's just important to do what you're passionate about. If you're working on projects or in a job where you love what you're doing, you're going to be a lot more successful. Um, I think uh, the advice I have to my myself 15 years ago is be patient when you're when you're looking at your at your career from uh, when you're early on on a week-to-week month-to-month year-to-year basis it may not seem like you're getting very far but all of a sudden when you look back you know 10 years later you're amazed at how much you've accomplished and that kind of speaks to the advice you gave me when I left here you said you know like 
So then there's great fear what you don't like is what it comes down to, right? And that's as important to figure out as it is what you do like. And I think that's really important advice too, right? Sometimes when you go into a direction, you realize it's not for you. And so you take that with you and you move forward. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that was the, the best advice I got from a, a science uh, prof at UBC. I was doing a project in his lab and by the end of it, I was uh, worn out and realized I absolutely wanted nothing to do with this. And I felt really bad because he was so passionate about it. And I went to talk to him and he was really excited for me because I figured out something that I didn't want to do, which is part of the battle of figuring out what you do want to do. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Well, thanks for your time today, Dave. Really appreciate you sitting down here and uh, talking to the audience. And uh, thanks for that. Thanks, Phil.